to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome, you all. I'm delighted to see so many people here. This is a, um, a moment that uh, is an important one for the Shorenstein Center. Uh, in that we are going to give our four fellows for the semester the opportunity to share some of their ideas and thoughts about what has uh, come to them during their their fellowship. And it's also important for me. This will probably be my last uh, brown bag lunch to host as director of the Shorenstein Center. Um, and I can't imagine a better group to go out with. So thank you. Uh, what I have asked our fellows to do is to take about five minutes each to talk about what they feel they have learned in this, you know, in this period. Learn from their uh, research, learn from their interactions, learn from their own thinking, their students, uh, however they want to frame it. Just to uh, give a sense of where their minds are now that they were not a few months ago. And then we will have a conversation and then we will uh, open the conversation to you all. So if I may, let's start. Uh, Bill, why don't you begin us? Okay. Uh, can I just take a minute and everybody to thank Alex for yes. everything he's done here? Thank you. Thank you sincerely and very much, and uh, I much appreciate it. That's personal, too. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I'm here. I, I'm... Uh, I used to run the Center for Public Integrity down in Washington. One of the big parts of it was something called the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. It's 185 journalists in 65 countries who work on cross-border investigations. So I've been writing about that and researching it and doing it. And one of the things that just hits me so strongly is how much journalism has to be organized on a global level to write about and, and, and investigate global institutions, global corporations, uh, NGOs, so much of the world is organized globally and journalism is not, is the way I look at it. And uh, I just noticed ICIJ, I'm not writing about this one, but they just did a big story and investigation on the World Bank. Uh, over 10 years, they've displaced 3.4 million people and didn't compensate them at all, which is the World Bank's policy. These are people who were evicted and abandoned all over the world in country after country after country. How do you do an investigation like that? Well, ICIJ, by working together, is organized to do exactly that. So I love that, that CJR said, this is the <coughs> kind of institution we need to do this kind of reporting. And they did, they had all the documents and all the data, but they also then did the ground level work and went to 14 countries and showed that it was there and, and published it. and. HuffPo did it and Guardian did it and it's used in some, something like 50 different publications have already carried it. So my sense is this is I sort of, you know, I, I ran ICIJ, I knew about it, but I didn't realize how much more we need this for the world that we're in. Too many stories. We know every environmental story is cross-border. We know so much of the financial stories are cross-border. Uh, you know, it's just we get, I was a foreign correspondent for NPR, I love that kind of work, but I see that as so difficult for one institution based in one country to send out a reporter to do true global reporting. 
You can be a foreign correspondent, you can cover an event, you can even do investigations, you can do work, but you're not organized. Uh, the one I'm writing about is something called Swiss Leaks. They had 170 reporters working in 55 countries to do the reporting on HSBC Bank. A really bad bank, happens to be the second largest in the world, the largest in Europe, was involved in all kinds of money laundering and fraud and funding Iran and, uh, oh yeah, the blood diamonds, all their money went through HSBC, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they got a hold of the documents that had been stolen from HSBC and they farmed it out to all these journalists after they had computer engineers working it up so they could give the information to everyone. And it's just, uh, it's fun to see that this week, the Nina Ricci family, uh, I think Arlette Ricci is the granddaughter of the fashion uh, home, well she just got three year prison sentence, uh, based on HSBC. They said in France they have 3,000 cases of tax evasion now because of these documents are out. So, I mean, obviously I, I'm a big fan of transparency, I'm a big fan of accountability, but I'm feeling like more and more <coughs> it has to be done and organized on a different level, and, and ICIJ is doing that. I think we need more of that. And uh, our partner was Lamond. They were, they were the ones who got the documents originally, but they came to us and said, look, we can't do this on a global level. There are 200 countries involved here. We can do France, and we can do the names in France, but we can't do the whole world. And so they had ICIJ help them, and ICIJ did that. Uh, the Guardian has been one of the greatest partners in this, and the Guardian is, is really good. And I, I, some of the interviews, I'll just end on this, because I don't want to keep going very long, because I'd love to hear your questions, but I interviewed the investigative editor for The Guardian, uh, David Lee, great guy, and he said, I've been involved in three of the biggest global investigations lately. The Guardian and he leading the investigations. They did the WikiLeaks project uh, on, 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 on cables, uh, State Department cables, etc. He did the NSA Snowden story based on what Snowden did. And he did this offshore leaks projects with ICIJ. He's an ICIJ member. And he said these three projects, they all involved big data. The offshore leaks data was like 160 times bigger than WikiLeaks. I mean, these are really massive things, but he said, I've been involved in all three of these. We've led them. We had a big impact because it was published all over the world at the same time. This is the future of journalism and the way we need to work. And I, I using that in the paper, and I, I thought that was good. And I think I've, by digging into this, I've been able to learn this more than just when I was sort of running it. And so. if you would, just in a nutshell, explain what your paper is going to do. It's going to basically show the history of this international consortium. It's, it's uh, 18 years old now, started by uh, a MacArthur genius and former Shorenstein fellow, Charles Lewis. Uh, he began it to extend the Center for Public Integrity's investigations worldwide. So I'm sort of writing the history of ICIJ and also going from offshore leaks to something called uh, LuxLeaks. They, they got a hold of 340 corporate papers of biggest corporations in our, in our world basically going through Luxembourg and paying no taxes. And they got all of those documents and made that public. Uh, so from, from offshore leaks to Swiss leaks now, uh, I mean to Lux leaks to Swiss leaks, yeah, they're all, those are the hashtags. And when they come out with a story, they actually are trending worldwide and they're, they're, they get lots and lots of coverage from that. So and, and my Bill, paper is showing that and how, it, how they did it, how they've done it, and what 
some of the impact has been. And it's going to be instructive for others who want to do this kind of work. That's the, that's the long-term impact of it, at least that's what we think. Well, I hope so, but I'm awfully <coughs> delighted to be here to do it, so no, good. Thank you. Uh, Michelle Norris. Thank you. I want to echo Bill's sentiments, Alex, to thank you so much for what you've done over the years at the Shorenstein Center to really put a spotlight on the craft of journalism because it really is a craft. And for those of us who are fortunate enough to go through the fellowship program, it reminds me when I was hosting All Things Considered, I, I'm a special correspondent for NPR News and for a long time was a host of the flagship, flagship afternoon program. And I had interviewed um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and he said that there was a year where he had an injury and he was forced at that point to stay on the sidelines. And on the sidelines, looking at the game, he learned something about the game that he never would have understood if he was actually on the court. And I think that that's, that's true for those of us who can go through this wonderful fellowship, is we learn something about the industry and we, re we return renewed and, and better um, able to understand it. I am a part-time fellow this year, and I'm looking at issues of race in America. And I've um, conducted a series of study groups um, around the issue of, of changing racial demographics and changing notion of racial identity and how it impacts politics and policy and, and pop culture. And uh, through these study groups, we have, we have examined a number of issues in the students. We had a lot of fun in this class going through a number of real world sort of hypothetical situations where the students at one point had to actually put together uh, a press release in about 15 minutes based on um, a verbal eruption made by a sitting president on a matter of race um, on top of the news cycle and with everyone clamoring to understand it. And it was amazing their facility and, and you know how they were able to do this and what they actually came up with. I've been also trying to use my time here to better understand a project I run, something called the Race Card Project, where I collect people's individual stories on race and identity in six words. And often they start with just six words, but then people share the meaning behind those six words. And it's amazing what people can pack into just six words. White, not allowed to be proud. Black babies cost uh, less to adopt. My son's not half, he is double. Um, and in examining some of these, you learn quite a bit about race in America. And what I've been trying to do is understand this moment where, you know, President Johnson talked about a moment where history and fate meet at a single time and in a single moment. Um, it's interesting how where race is concerned, in the first draft of history, we in the media were so focused on sort of an ecumenical notion of America entering an allegedly post-racial status that that defined our understanding of what was happening when indeed that moment sort of collided with a number of events and developments in the world, really the least of which being a black man moving into the White House, but demographic changes, economic tumult, technological disruption, um, global unrest, that led to this moment which meant that those of us in the media and individuals would have to think about issues of race issues of identity, issues of belonging in a very different way. And so the first draft of history um, sort of masked the need for sort of a deeper understanding of that. And so I've been trying to use part of my time here to do a series of interviews with individuals that land in my inbox at the Race Card Project, but also with people in positions of power in Washington and government, in journalism, in public policy, um, and to understand how the narrative around race has changed 
in ways that we don't always understand and that are somehow masked or upstaged by the first draft of history suggesting that we were entering um, a, a rather sunny state where race relations were better when every day we pick up the news, every day we turn on the television, every day hopefully you turn on the radio. And, uh, and you, you hear about unrest that was not what we were led to expect based on that sort of sunny moment on that uh, January 20th of 2009, um, that inauguration day. Thank you, Michelle. Um, Jackie. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, I also want to thank Alex because in 37 years as a reporter, I you know, always envied people who had fellowships, but it just never seemed the right time. And so when Alex called, I still didn't think it was the right time, but my um, editors encouraged me to take it, and I'm so glad I did, despite the winner. Is this why you invited me? Because no one else would we come? Said, <laughs> we know the person who will really suffer a lot. And complain about it. Um, this... Uh, so once I knew I was coming, the process of figuring out what I was going to do with my time um, produced one of those moments that I love as a reporter, when your premise that you start out with <coughs> is questioned or changed by your reporting. And what happened is I thought, when I knew I was coming, I wanted to pursue looking into a, uh, an idea that two political scientists that some of you may have heard of, Tom Mann and Norm Ornstein, had come up with and written a book about. Uh, it was actually their second book, because their first book was called The Broken Branch, How Congress is Broken and Dysfunctional. The second, at their, actually their publisher's invitation, they wrote, and they took this step of saying, it's more the fault of the Republican Party, and here's why. And they had facts and data, and, um, and I wanted to pursue that because in thir 30 of my 37 years I've been in Washington and I've seen a, a major transformation in the Republican Party. And um, I covered Congress most of that time, White House the other. And um, I agreed with them. And, you know, people that had once been hard right conservatives like Bob Dole, I mean, who after all was put on the 76 ticket to be a conservative offset to Gerald Ford, was now a raging moderate. And what did that mean? Uh, so, but I thought, as a New York Times reporter, it would be a very hard thing to look into with that, that I'd be suspect, even though 18 years of my career I'd been at the Wall Street Journal. Um, so the last seven have been at the New York Times. And so I struggled with that. And I did some preliminary reporting, and I went and I talked to people, you know, people whose names you'd recognize. And one, a former, and all Republicans, and, um, a former Republican Senate leader said to me in the course of lunch one day that what he really wished his party could have is an experience they needed to do what Democrats did and the British Labor Party did in the 80s and into the 1990s, mostly under the leadership of Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, but to sort of push from the far edge of the spectrum more towards the center, not all the way to the center, but just right of center. And he said, the problem is, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair didn't have to put up with the kind of media that we have to put up with, where the first thing, at the first attempt to moderate or compromise, it pounces, and it stops us. And it's, um, so I thought, well, that's, that's maybe 
something I should look at. So I did. And um, Alex wanted to know what we've learned. I really, I was almost surprised by how much I learned. First thing I learned was um, just how great a proliferation there's been in conservative media with the age of the internet. <coughs> you know, it's, it's I, even for me, dealing with media and po politics coverage on a daily basis, I really hadn't given much thought to whether it went much beyond Fox News, redstate.com, and the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. But there are literally uh, hundreds of, if not thousands, of local talk radio figures who are overwhelmingly conservative, according to the industry. And more than that, the internet has spawned so many um, entities, and they're so much more conservative that, as um, a watchdog told me, and I've confirmed by experience, one of the ways that some of these entities advertise themselves is to promote themselves as more conservative than Fox, which I found you know, quite interesting. Um, so the proliferation was the first thing. Um, the second was just how critical they are of the so-called Republican establishment. If you spend several months like I have, you know, going through Twitter and reading certain, you know, going through my bookmarks and what you quickly find is they're on balance, they're actually arguably more uh, critical of Republicans than they are of Democrats. I mean, Obama's going to be a favorite target constantly, but the amount of abuse that the Republican leadership takes is just ex was extraordinary to me, even you know knowing that it to some extent that it existed. And the third thing relates to that, which is I had no idea how easy it was like shooting fish in a barrel to find Republicans, not all on the record, certainly, but a number, uh, who would express their worry to me about the direction of the party. Now granted, these are the dreaded establishment or mainstream or traditional Republicans, whatever you want to call them, but they're very uh, worried, first because they think the party needs what I described in terms of the model that the Democrats and the British Labor Party followed in order um, to do two things, really, to be a, a truly effective governing party and to be a party that nominates appealing candidates and that so that they can win the presidency. They've lost the popular vote in five of the last six presidential elections. When the Democrats did that, lost five of the last six presidential elections, was in that period up through Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush when they did this moderating. Uh, so this would be the time that Republicans should be doing this. But they, the number of people, the number of Republican leaders, a number of whom in their own time were rabble-rousers themselves, are now you know, just de deri derided, disregarded, damned for being too compromising, too conciliatory, too centrist. And they, and they just, I mean, these are people in my own days I used to cover as, as congressional rebels or spoilers on the presidential trail. Um, so I think just to close, the one, the, the best evidence of this, they couldn't have done a better job of playing to my uh, new premise after um, I got here in that you had a new Congress for the first time controlled both houses by Republicans for the first time in Obama's presidency, and you had the start of the presidential campaign. And the best issue to illustrate the way this is playing out was immigration. 
in two th after the 2012 loss, the Republican Party put out a report that the chairman of the party commission and one of its major recommendations was that the party had to put out a positive <coughs> solution for immigration that would provide a path to citizenship and to change its rhetoric on immigration or it would never, or Hispanic, Latino voters and a lot of Asians would never listen to another word they said. They've done the exact opposite as we're seeing and the evidence of that was in this new Congress and in the presidential trail where in short, Speaker Boehner was almost ousted by his own party in part because he was seen as uh, pro-amnesty. And, um, the and then they had this fight that lasted for weeks, fight among themselves over immigration because they uh, attached it to homeland security with the losing bet that they could force, that they could, the threat of withholding homeland security funds would force Obama to reverse his immigration actions, which A, he wasn't going to do, and B, if they want to threaten to withhold Homeland Security spending, he's like, bring it on, you know, see what happens to you. And then, meanwhile, on the campaign trail, uh, you have two of the candidates that are considered, you know, that they could potentially win, the front runner, if I don't really think he's the front runner, but some people will call Jeb Bush the front runner. He certainly, you know, would arguably be able to win a, a general election. And then Marco Rubio, who's one of the stars of their party, both of whom are called so by some Republicans I interview, is fatally flawed because of their pro-amnesty views. And other people like Scott Walker have so flip-flopped on the issue that they're seen as a potential Romney if they were to get the nomination, that they've, their new position makes them eligible for the nomination, but not for the general election, all of which is, you know, highly speculative at this point. But it just, it's indicative of their inability to uh, compromise on that, to bring it back to conservative media, is you cannot find uh, anyone in conservative media, as Republicans pointed out to me, who's for an immigration uh, reform bill. And uh, so, it will remain a, a problem for them. Can they, you know, still win the presidency? Of course, but it's going to be pretty hard when you're only getting one out of five Latino voters and we have an electoral college that where they're going to need the votes of states where Latinos and Asians, Asian Americans are such a good, uh, high percentage of the population. So I don't come to any conclusions because the Republicans I interview don't have any <coughs> solutions. and. Um, the one thing they do say is that it'll take an individual to sort of, with the appeal across the party, you know, everybody points to Reagan. But then in their next breath, they'll say, I don't even think Ronald Reagan could be nominated in this Republican Party. So uh, I just sort of tell it as they see it and offer no hope for the future. Thanks. <laughs> 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 Um, thank you. I, I'm also going to offer no hope. I, I also <laughs> want to join in, in the sincere chorus of thanking you, you, Alex. You've been extraordinary, among everything else, you've been extraordinarily kind. And the center overall is, is a uh, combines professionalism and kindness in a very unusual and welcome way. So thank you. Um, <clears throat> so um, I came to, I'm not a journalist, I came to the center having spent about four and a half years working on 
um, a project, among other projects, we're working on a project for Harvard Library to open up library data to developers who want to use it. And you do that through an API, an application programming interface. APIs, anyone? <laughs> uh, which is basically, so if you know what they are, you know what I'm about to say is basically wrong, but an API <laughs> is a website intended for computers, not for humans, that makes an organization's data available to developers, who, software developers who want to do something with it. So my... That's um, the best shorthand definition of an API I've ever heard. Thank you. I just <laughs> thought of it as I was sitting here. So it's technically... Write it down. <laughs> no, it's gone already. Sorry. It's recorded. Um, so uh, I came um, thinking that I would be writing about the rise of open APIs for news media. That is, uh, an open API anybody, any developer can go to and use the data without asking permission. Um, and that this would, uh, the rise indicates that this is a growing good thing. Um, and uh, reality um, disagreed. And so my, uh, so in 2008, um, uh, NPR and then the New York Times and then the Guardian um, created these open APIs. Uh, pretty amazing. And the people who did it, uh, highly capable technical staff at those three organizations, built really great APIs um, and full of the same sort of idealism and fervor and sort of data hippieism that, um, that I, I had entering this project as well. Um, and it turns out that the open APIs, which were intended, the, the sort of utopian dream was that developers around the world would think of things to do with this uh, news information, um, and primarily not the content. NPR does make a co its content available, but um, usually that cannot be done in full, so um, not the content, but the information about the content, the article title, the, the story's title, of maybe a description, um, uh, the, of course, the um, journalist and um, uh, some tags about it and the rest, um, that developers would take this wealth of, uh, of data, of metadata, and would create programs um, and applications that nobody within the organization would think of. There are more people out there. There's, they'd come up with stuff that any organization, uh, no, no single organization would come up with, and we'd see this flowering of of applications uh, making news more understandable, more findable, uh, more present on, on the web, and that absolutely did not happen. There were some great applications written. Um, they, all three of the organizations have really cool examples that they point to as part of the handful of really cool examples, but there was not a flowering of this, and in fact, um, overall in the world, these uh, open APIs have tended to, they're being reduced often rather than expanded. Um, so, uh, that's not what I wanted to find. Um, but it turns out that all three organizations are ecstatically happy with what these APIs did for them internally, did for their organizations internally. Um, they all have a CMS, a content management system, with ma which manages the workflow of the articles and the publishing into multiple formats and multiple online, on uh, Android, on iTunes, on everything, on Google Glass a never-ending um, proliferation of devices, each with its own way of, its own form of user interface and its own physical restrictions. Um, you get a lot less on Google Glass than you do on an iPad, for example. Um, and an API turns out to be an ideal way of, uh, an ideal layer on top of your CMS um, that enables you to address these new devices and new uses um, 
with uh, almost trivially, as close to trivial as you're ever going to see it. Um, it enables partnerships, uh, strategic, strategic partners who want to use this content, um, and you do a deal with, it makes it uh, unbelievably easy for them to, to do that, which is great for the, for the news media because whatever the reasons for the strategic partnership, whether it's to um, get the news, uh, get the, the brand out more, or to fulfill the mission of making the world uh, hear, understand, and respond to news, um, wh whatever the reason for doing it, strategic partners now become, partnerships now become also <coughs> trivial incredibly easy with, with NPR uh, since it's a member organization that's what members are strategic <coughs> partners this was greeted very very enthusiastically by the member stations it enabled them to get precisely the set of stuff from NPR that they wanted on their home pages um, uh, so uh, internally it's been hugely positive basically no negatives from these three organizations I did not hear a, a single negative word about this it seems like the um, the right architecture for the internal management of of the processes that create the news. So um, that's it, that's very exciting. And for me, the the really uh, for me the really interesting part. I'm not sure that for the readers of what I'm writing, it's going to be the most interesting part or interesting at all. But for me, the interesting thing is. Are there ways in which, let's imagine that other organizations learn from these, you know, NPR and New York Times and The Guardian, these are pretty, three pretty good and pretty prominent news organizations, that other news organizations learn from them and start creating internal APIs for very um, business and sort of selfish reasons. It's a good way of, of, doing, of running your business. Are there um, ways in which that could lead to the original utopian um, uh, outcome, desired outcome, at least by, by some of us, in which um, news is more freely available and becomes, is more visible in the, um, on the, in the infrastructure of the net um, so that it becomes a resource that is more widely and easily grabbed and, and reused and thus news reaches listeners and readers um, far more often than it, uh, and systematically than it does now. Um, and I, I'll leave that as an open question, but I think it's a, um, there is an element of utopian hope left in me that the growth of internal APIs could end up with um, the sort of utopian infrastructure for news that um, I started off with before reality crushed my hopes. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask each one of the fellows a, a question, and I'm going to ask them to respond cryptically, if you would, because I know that there are people who want to who want to uh, ask you questions themselves. Let me start with you, Bill. One of the things that, uh, that became apparent was that this idea of cooperation is something that seems to work much better transnationally than it does within our country itself. Why? What can be done about that? Mm. Well, that's one of the things I came up with in seeing this. Uh, ICIJ has partnered with 60 Minutes, with the World Bank, they partnered with HuffPost, but it's been very hard to get the kind of partnership like The Guardian and Le Monde and Le Soir and, uh, you know, Asahi Shimbun in Japan and on and on around the world. They've been much more willing to really step back, do the work, really, really good work, and then all come out at the same time publishing it. And I, I think the reason is Americans are, we're still in a competitive mindset, not in a collaborative mindset. 
we still think, well, the New York Times is going to do what the New York Times is going to do with the excellent kind of reporting that they have, and they're going to do their own work. They don't want to share. They basically, on some of the issues we talked to them about the data, they said, you just give us the data and we'll, we'll do what we want. And we said, well, that's not actually how we work. <laughs> so I think uh, Americans are not quite in the same way that, and the Europeans, of course, the Le Monde doesn't compete with the Guardian exactly. They different languages, right, and Le Soir. And so they don't compete in the same way, I think, as an American <coughs> media does. But in the long run, it is much more than the U.S. and much more than competing with your neighbor. It's sort of joining in a big global effort. And I think in the long run, that will happen. But uh, we're not quite there yet. Michelle, um, Bill Clinton had the reputation of being someone who had a, an ease and a comfort in dealing with African Americans uh, that was ext quite extraordinary. Uh, of course, Barack Obama is a black American. Uh, Hillary is now going to have to connect with that population. How is she going to try to do it? Can she do it? Well, she can do it, but it's going. one of the things that she's going to have to do is go through President Obama's historic record in dealing with um, African Americans, and that will take her through the 2008 campaign and the long memories that people may have with um, the, the sort of internecine warfare between the Obama camp and the Clinton camp. There are wounds that will probably have to be healed and olive branches that will probably have to be extended, but um, she has very strong support in um, African-American communities, but with some of the specific leadership, it's more of an enthusiastic, mm -hmm. a matter of enthusiasm. How enthusiastic will they be? Uh, about the campaign, about her personally, and then turning out people in large numbers. Jackie, we're talking now about a, a Republican presidential field that could be as many as 19 or 20 people. Uh, how are the people who are going to be the top five or six that will continue to get the money to be able to continue with the, with the primary campaigns, how do you think they're going to separate themselves and when do you expect that to start right now all they're doing is bashing Hillary that's the you know that's right. the safe thing for them to be doing they are not doing any of the things that will say me not him right, right. I mean that's a good question I, I for this project went to Iowa a couple weeks ago and I went to a forum that included Ted Cruz Bobby Jindal uh, Rick Santorum and Mike Huckabee and the striking thing about it was, and it was moderated by a conservative talk show host out of Des Moines, who, uh, and I spent the evening at his house with he and his family, and he expressed and said others had expressed to him a disappointment that they agreed with each other on everything, and it was all, you know, aimed at, against uh, Obama and Democrats and Hillary Clinton increasingly. And, but they are going, and, and he said, the talk show host, he said, you know, they're going to start on each other pretty quickly. Now, I think it will happen by the fall, because that's uh, an early fall, because that's when the first of the RNC-sanctioned debates will start. And, um, and if, you know, and they're going to have to, um, you know, <laughs> cert, cert, you know, there's this group, the group foursome I was taught, uh, saw in particular is vying for the evangelical vote. So people within these little groups are going to be 
taking shots at others within their group. And then they're all going to take shots at, you know, perceived front runners like uh, Jeb Bush or whoever's by then doing well in the polls. But um, this is a little sort of honeymoon period, and it's not going to last much longer. I noticed that Jeb Bush is now becoming Jeb W. Bush to his enemies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, David, when you talk about your vision of what this technological uh, uh, potential is, and you hear Bill Busenberg talking about the global idea of journalism, I, my sense is that these things marry each other, and they really belong to be practically in the same paper almost about how to do this in just in terms of the logistics and the ease of dealing. Is what kind of journalism he has been looking at something that is compatible with the technology that you've been talking about? So th there may be technological compatibilities. Um, which would basically come down to asking whether the CMSs of the, whether it would help to have the CMSs of the various uh, news media um, connected to one another. I'm not sure that it would. I think the collaboration um, is happening at a higher level of human interaction, not so much at the management of the, of the articles. And so um, uh, I would assume that um, uh, further collaborations, if they become more routine, will um, find a set of online tools that are particularly good for online collaboration. They may or may not be specific to, to journalists, because what the journalists are doing is uh, together is really sounds, from what I know through you, Bill, um, sounds like uh, really a, just a, a um, specific use of a more general type of, uh, um, they could be, they would be using more specifically uh, more general tools for collaboration, tools for writing together, for keeping. Um, I mean, a GitHub is actually maybe one of the places to look for this. Um, GitHub. So a GitHub is a. Um, yes, it's difficulty because we don't speak the same language. <laughs> uh, I just, just realized what I got myself in for. So um, GitHub is uh, the. Um, by far now the standard repository that developers who are working on open source software, that is software that they want to share, make fully reusable and shareable by the world. It's where they put this software um, and it has the great advantage of having a sophisticated yet usable versioning um, scheme for software that has already been repurposed by in, uh, for um, more normal human sort of writing, um, collaborative writing. And so something like GitHub may actually be a really um, good place for the next round of international collaboration um, to look in order to find a set of online tools. So in an to actually answer your question, um, I, I think that the, similar the commonality between our two may have um, a bit more to do with culture than with technology, that the barriers in, um, in the US uh, to collaboration are in part um, cultural, in part business, but also in part just a culture of how you do things. That culture is broken down among, in the technical community, that culture of, the culture of collaboration is extremely strong. And so it may be that the real point of similarity is watching how that culture of collaboration percolates through the process of creating articles and, uh, and stories and the process of um, making them shareable across the net. And that may be a place 
domestically where these things can actually come together and be more encouraged. Let me invite you to ask questions, but I want you to please, if you do ask a question, ask a question of an individual. We're not going to be able to have everybody respond to everything. And we start by tradition with the, the Shorenstein Center with students. So if you're a student and would like to ask a question, just indicate, raise your hand, and you will be called upon. No student questions? Well, then I declare the floor open. <laughs> I've got one. You're not a student, I know. But you're a, you're, you're a professor. You open it up. <laughs> okay, I have questions both for Bill and Michelle. Um, in the United States, it claims to highly value uh, freedom of expression, First Amendment values, uh, free flow of information. Um, yet we have uh, no news entity like The Guardian which receives parts of this uh, revenue from profits from the independent and has a mandate to sort of cover issues to the left of center. Um, why is it that we don't have such a uh, news media here in the United States? And moreover, in terms of the organizations that you mentioned where you're uh, uh, working with you, a lot of them have leaks in their names, which implies that they depended upon whistleblowers. And even U.S. policy tends to favor whistleblowers technically, but in practice, it does not. Uh, would you, could you respond to those issues? You know, the Guardian's a, a great institution, and I, I got to listen to, to Alan Rushberger, who's just moving from the editorship to the trust about it, but they've done a very good job. They have a very particular way of organizing themselves. They're for-profit, but they're, that they work for a not-for-profit not trust and all that. And his whole theory was, we're going to just take these big, massive investigations and run with them really strongly. And he's done that uh, extremely well. I think you know, he's a good model for a lot of people. I don't know that it's so different than this country. I mean, they've done the leaks projects really well, but, you know, look, the New York Times has done some great leaks part at the Post, certainly on, on Snowden, that's where that went. So, you know, we're not, it's not completely in a, in a different world, in my view. Uh, I think we're, we're, we're slightly different. They have their own challenges, by the way, financially, as we do in this country, and in, in all of these, these media. What about the MSNBC idea that this is a politically to the left oriented news organization? Yeah. You know, in an overt kind of way that the New York Times doesn't like to sort of no, We still occupy. have this, this idea of, of appeal to the most people and be so somewhat objective and not subjective. And, and the Guardian, the British press is very much, you can look at the Telegraph, you can look at the FT, you can look at each of them as sort of a, a political line that they take. And they have so many papers they can sort of do that. We don't, our press doesn't have that approach, although you know, Fox and MSNBC have moved us in somewhat that direction, but I don't see that in the print press yet. They still want the most numbers of readers by not narrowing their their audience. Questions? Yes. Um, this is a question for Michelle Norris. I go so far back that I was a white officer in a black outfit. Uh, why I was chosen for this, I don't know, except that perhaps that I'm from an abolitionist state, Massachusetts although I'm not from an old line New England family. But it seems to me, and I wrote a blog on this a couple of days ago, but nothing in post, that uh, we, on one hand, we have a great country, the founding fathers' rhetoric, etc., and on the other hand, we have a terrible uh, uh, history of cruelty through slavery. 
and uh, we're trying to, we're suddenly realizing, I think, that this is not necessarily a great country. And I noticed that Michelle said that uh, there's been a transition of feeling from the time that Obama was elected until now we realize that we have terrible problems. And I'd like to have you, uh, your opinion as to why this has happened. Is it because we have a black man in the White House? Is it because we have social networks that report these uh, fight on black killings? Uh, what, what is your, uh, your diagnosis of this sudden realization that we have a terrible problem? I don't know that it's a sudden realization. I think we have a new lens through which to view it. Um, the things that we're seeing are not new. The, the, the difference is that we're seeing them. Um, when you see the grainy videos of uh, Walter Scott or Eric Garner losing his life on camera, or now the young man that was arrested in Baltimore, you know, being dragged to a police car, we see all of that. Um, if you look at the police statistics, it indicates that this has been happening for some time, but we didn't have this sort of first-person grainy video to document that. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me about this moment that we now find ourselves in is looking at these things and why we didn't perhaps gear ourselves or gird ourselves for a deeper examination of this is a, um, a difference of what happens and who's controlling the narrative. I mean, I've been doing a lot of reading around these big anniversaries that we're going through, when um, civil rights leaders exalted the moment that President Johnson, you know, pushed Congress to pass voting rights legislation, civil rights legislation, and voting rights legislation. But at every moment, there was also a concerted effort to make sure that Americans understood that the work was not done. There was a concerted effort to make sure that editorials were written, that the coverage continued to understand that black Americans and Americans of color in general, but particularly black Americans, were, were not living in anything close to a situation of equality, that people were still <coughs> suffering, that there was still great economic unrest. Well, that changed a little bit when you have a person of color who's in power, and perhaps there is less of an incentive to show that America, um, to, to point out the warts you know, beneath the skin in America, to point out the problems, because um, you're talking about a person of, of a person of color who then has to govern, and optimism is such an important part of governance that it makes it much harder to drive that narrative and to actually encourage people to um, to look more deeply at the problems that exist, because in governance you're more uh, focused on trying to solve problems, not to necessarily point out problems. So that may, you know, explain. But but what we're seeing is is not new. Um, we're just seeing it more more clearly. Right here. Me. Mm -hmm. um, so this is for Bill. Given that we have such a crowded media landscape today and so much news is broken on Twitter or elsewhere online, do you see that as making the overall task of traditional investigative journalists easier or harder? And in, in what ways have they had to adapt? I think it's very hard to break through the noise that's all around us, all the time. And one of the things in, in interviewing ICIJ members around the world, what they told me was, we love it when we all come out 50 publications in, you know, on the same day, and, and on radio and television, and, and it becomes a big echo, which they said, this gives us traction for our work that we never had when we published on our own. 
So in a way, it's 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 creating a media storm a little bit, which breaks through the noise that is is I think investigative journalists in general worry about. They spend months and years sometimes and do a big report, and it kind of goes by, and the next day, you know, nothing's happened. Yes. This is another question for Bill. Um, it is it's when you look at the consortiums that are trying to be formed. Have you uncovered any interesting business models or business constructs that help facilitate that? By well, the way, Bill, you should know, these are two people that intend to change journalism forever. Oh, good. For the better. You know, I didn't spend a lot of time on the business model. ICIJ's business model is, is you know, everybody pays for their own work. Everybody's responsible for their own work. ICIJ, we raise the money. It's like a couple million dollars a year to, for a staff of 10 to do the work with the data and then and then you know put it out it's so it's very low cost in effect that's I think why it works if money had to change hands in all of these things it'd be too complicated and too much going on so it's a it's a it's a collaboration without financial underpinnings really that's what it amounts to and everybody has to pay their own freight and you know that seems to work the, the friction issue is a really big one here the, the to get a group of you know, a hundred plus journalists doing anything. If you have transaction costs involved, it isn't going to happen. And that's what ProPublica told me. They said, we never want to do anything like that. The transaction costs are just way too high. So this is a model where you keep that really low and uh, they've been doing it now for three or four years. So they really know kind of how to work together and not cause the friction. Chris. Um, this is for Jackie. Uh, I'm wondering in your research on the proliferation of the conservative media, um, which are, as you said, more conservative than Fox, do you think that there's been enough of that that it's going to change the way this election is covered? And also, is there an antidote to just change the way the election is covered in general before we go through the next one, which is already <coughs> Exhausting. Well, the media that I'm seeing and t and talking about is, uh, as one Republican put it, it's not uh, aimed at at covering something. It's aimed at driving an outcome, in their words. And this is so they will. I think what you'll see, what I'm told to expect to see, is. Uh, that there's going to be, as there is now, a lot of, um, of attacking people that conservative media doesn't like, which principally is, at this point, Jeb Bush is the one they unite in not liking. But then you'll get others, you know, some, to, to a surprising degree, there's a number who don't like or trust Scott Walker, even though he's leading a big field in many polls. But I think there's, there's some people, you know, have their, uh, t Ted Cruz is obviously, a, if I had to pick someone who's the big favorite, it's Ted Cruz. Um, so, but what will happen is there's going to be a lot of blood spilled, uh, proverbially, and until there's a nominee, and especially if it's Hillary Clinton, they're going to have no, most of them will have no problem just coming on board for whoever the Republican is and attacking Hillary Clinton. Now that's 
not to say that the Republican, in trying to appeal to a general election electorate, would not take a position that would be anathema to some parts of it. But their hatred for all things, you know, Democratic or Clinton would overcompensate for that. Um, I don't see how it changes election coverage more broadly. I mean, to the extent, I mean, most people think the big criticism has always been a mainstream media that they cover it like a horse race. Right. Um, I don't see that changing. Um, although, you know, especially with the prolifer proliferation of all sorts of media, there are <coughs> plenty of places to get substance. Um, just, it's almost like, we, well, we have too much information, but I don't, I don't really see. They have their own way of covering this. I don't see it uh, changing things more broadly. It, it really, it's, um, it's really sort of fun to read. I sort of recommend it to people for <laughs> entertainment value, the way they are tearing into some of the uh, other Republicans. And um, But it's, uh, um, Jeb Bush is definitely the loser in conservative media. Jackie, if you look at, at what happened during the Republican primary season last time around, there was a big field and it got winnowed out. But the thing that seemed to winnow it was not ideas, it was screw-ups. It was somebody making an ass out of themselves in a debate or someone saying something that came back to haunt them and so forth and so on. Uh, is that really the sort of climate we're in where it really is not going to be the ideas? It's going to be who gets caught being an idiot. Um, well, there, th for that reason, to avoid that very thing is why the RNC is limited to the number of debates that they're going to have in this cycle. But on the other hand, there are others that are getting in beyond the definition, like this group that sponsored this uh, event that I attended in Iowa, in Des Moines, was um, a homeschoolers network, a statewide homeschoolers network in Iowa. And so only these most conservative, uh, the ones who really want that uh, vote, attended and others had commitments and there were some things going on in New Hampshire. Uh, that said, I think um, the thing that really is going, no matter how stupid the things are that people say, the bit, what matters is who's going to have the money to keep going. And that's what we saw in this last cycle where Newt Gingrich, for instance, and um, uh, was able to keep going longer than he was viable, really, because he had um, Sheldon Adelson's money behind him. He had some millions to spend, whereas Huckabee didn't have that kind of sugar daddy, so he um, had been, he was out pretty quickly. And so, you know, Ted Cruz has really gotten people's attention with raising $31 million in, in mm -hmm. a single week. And so, you know, I'm looking at the conservative media, but the conservative media is also, they've become more, um, as they put it, they're, they're becoming more, they're, they're, they say they're stealing from the establishment Republicans an emphasis on electability. And so Ted Cruz really uh, um, satisfies them because they consider him both pure and electable by virtue of having money behind him. Mm -hmm. Janice. This question is for Bill. Um, Tom Patterson in his most recent book makes a very for journalism education to be tied in with other academic programs at universities and colleges. If you, if you were uh, designing a journalism program for um, 
young people to continue working in investigative journalism, as you described, worldwide. What, what would you want them to know, and what would you require in your program for them to be engaged in? Good question. There's lots of parts to that kind of answer. I, I think, you know, the people I was hiring at the center were so often, they're, they're great computer-assisted reporting people. They know data. They know how to, you know, make data, visualize data. So I think the journalists of the future, you know, there's something that I would love, and, and, and Chuck Lewis, who started the center, has been talking about accountability studies. There's so much need for good investigative accountability work, which has to do with transparency. So anything around that, you're in every, every discipline, you think about how to make people accountable and think about that, both in the computer realm, because it's all going to be digital. That's what every journalist is going to be working in, is that, that realm. But then, you know, know how to, how to link that with every different part of the, the business school or the economics or the, you know, <clears throat> every, every part of the university. I'm, uh, well, anyway. since we have Tom Patterson standing here, I think it would be remiss not to sort of ask, what do you think, Tom? Well, you know, the argument is, is really around um, knowing your subject in order to know some of the questions to ask and answer. Um, and uh, I think with much of what Bill has done, uh, you know, sort of once you get the data, you know the problem. Right, so it, it, that's not usually the puzzle, um, and uh, but certainly, you know, even with those kinds of stories, um, as you kind of develop them, you've got to ask yourself, you know, what's really important about this, right? And um, and usually that requires some understanding of that area, uh, that the a knowledge of the area is part of smart reporting, and. Uh, so I, I think that is a general principle, the kind of the more you know about a subject, um, the more dimensions of it you will see, uh, and you're more likely to try to ask the right questions and, uh, and answer them. Yes, Richard. Um, I would follow on with Bill's uh, right. and sit. You done? Yeah. Sorry. No, no. It's, I like the tune. <laughs> catchy, isn't it? It's very catchy. I like it. Morris dancing here at the end of the hour. Um, when I read your uh, draft, I think I raised with you this idea that there are a series of follow-on stories that are needed as to what governments or other responsible entities do or don't do, because it seems to me that, my, in my experience, we have an, a weakening relationship between the expose of wrongdoing, which is becoming more sophisticated, <coughs> ways that ICIJ is operating across borders and the consequent actions of prosecutors, of governments, of legislators to correct the malfeasance discovered. I mean, you know, the Europeans now are starting to pass some legislation on bank fraud that would address some of this HSBC the U.S. has got, but it's, I mean, it's pretty weak gruel for the most part, particularly when you get down to the level of its actual application. Is there a whole set of seconds uh, order journalistic projects that lies in what the hell went wrong? We showed you this corruption. Why haven't why have why haven't our why haven't our public servants fixed it? 
the need for follow-up and keeping on a story is absolutely critical to that that you're mentioning. And it means going back and going back and going back. And that's very difficult for journalists to do and to fund and to be able to to accomplish. But I think it's... Well, it's, it's also a problem in journalism, I think, as you, which you certainly know, which is it doesn't seem like news anymore. Oh, yeah, we did the HSBC story last year. How many times would an editor... There's still fraud and there's still this right. and there's still that. Right. Yeah. Give me a new story. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, is it... Is it journalism that has to do that, or is in fact is it our institutions and our and, and public outrage that Could doesn't matter? Could universities be doing more what? of it? Could yeah. students and yeah. faculty be doing more in this realm? Always more. Before you ask your question, Christine, I have a question for you. Okay. Is Bill de Blasio really going to run for president now? I would be stunned and shocked. And, um, the right person to ask. Uh, <laughs> I think that falls into the ever-growing list of columns written by Fred Dicker that you wonder, how in God's name can he write so many things that are just completely, completely untrue? Uh, so this goes in that A pocket. great journalistic tradition. Yes. I, have, uh, I have no answer to that question. Rush Limbaugh earns $40 million a year. I guess, <laughs> I guess it's a good gig if you can get it. It's a good time having to do fact-checking. I do not see that happening. Uh, my question uh, is for Jackie. I know you said that some folks... No clear kind of fixer person uh, uh, rose in your research, and even people said Ronald Reagan couldn't do it. But were there any names that popped up, or any name that popped up even more than once? Well, I mean, it counted as wishful thinking, but it was uh, some said Jeb Bush, huh? you know, uh, that he hasn't, if, if he's able, he's not gone back on things, the two big issues that I look, both immigration and Common Core. I didn't mention Common Core, but it's an issue was so, began as a bipartisan initiative of the Governor's Association and it's now a litmus test for Republicans, one of immigration and Common Core. Um, uh, and so he's not backed off of either of those and if he, you know, but, so the question is can he still get the nomination? Will he have, you know, the money, we think he will, but uh, that he could, that he's shown he's willing to stand by his record and justify that record, and but that it would take someone who's, you know, able to come out to, to, to be seen as a winner and, and speak, you know, truth to power, the power being these conservative media and the grassroots sort of uh, activists that they amplify and provoke. Um, but he, really, that's the only one. Uh, there, so a few people will mention Rubio, and he too is, uh, you know, he was part of the Gang of Eight in the Senate on immigration. And but he is interestingly, to an extent, Jeb Bush is not. Now Jeb Bush did go to the CPAC conference, and he went on stage and he had an interview with um, uh, Hannity, mm -hmm. back and forth on this. But. Uh, Marco Rubio is really making an effort to reach out to conservative media and justify his position. Now, I, you know, some I don't think it's hard to see Rubio, who looks like he's 20 years old, being a Reagan-esque figure. But, um, but that's that's those are the only two names. We're going to we're going to have to end. But I want to ask you a question that is arose arisen today from something involving Jeb Bush. Uh, and I don't know what, whether my alarm at hearing this is justified or not. 
But the AP did a story today that said that Jeb Bush is considering turning his campaign effectively over to a PAC. A PAC that would be free to raise unlimited amounts of money and would have basically the control of the campaign for the, for the most part, the nuts and bolts of every aspect of it and would free the campaign but would dwarf the campaign in terms of the amount of money that would be used and in theory would not coordinate. It's hard for me to imagine the conservative anti-Jeb anti Bush folks seeing this as anything but an incredible power play by the, uh, by the, by the establishment. And I don't know what to think of it myself. Yeah. No. Did you see this article? No, I didn't see it. So. Yeah. It was, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, the concept takes the whole idea of PACs and stands it on its head yeah. and turns the campaigning itself over to PACs because they can raise unlimited amounts of money. Well, we are in a wild west when it comes to campaign uh, finance and it really boggles the mind that Chief Justice Roberts, you know, or, and the court, their opinion on Citizens yeah. United, w which said that, um, that it's not, that they didn't see uh, corrupting um, effect. Uh, I, I do think you're, that's going to be one of the new, the next new movements in this country that's going to unite both sides as a revolt against money in politics. We're out of time. I want to thank my fellow fellows here. You did a great job.